Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. So a new priest must preside over his first mass, and he is so nervous he can barely speak. He calls his bishop, what should I do? I know I'm going to gain some confidence, but I'm so terrified right now I can't even prepare a homily, much less speak it. And the bishop, wise and seasoned, had a novel solution. He said, you know, when I was a young priest, I too would get quite nervous. And so in my water glass, I would substitute vodka (laughs) instead. And when my nerves got the better of me, During my homily or presiding over Mass, I would just take a little sip, and it it really did help. So maybe you should try that, and I'll come to Mass when you preside to encourage you along. Sounded great. So Sunday arrived, and the young priest prepared according to the bishop's suggestion. At the outset of the sermon, the very beginning, the nervous preacher took a long, thirsty drink, and then within the first five minutes of his talk, the glass was drained. And the formerly terrified parson was just preaching up a storm after that. Well, afterward, he found the bishop, and and he said to the bishop, That was great, Father. It worked. I wasn't nervous at all. And the bishop said, Yes, I gathered that. However, sip the vodka. Don't gulp it. There are ten commandments, not God's top ten greatest hits. (laughs) David slew Goliath. He did not whip his butt. (laughs) The recommended grace before meal is not rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, pop. The saints are consecrated, not constipated. (laughs) When you speak of the trials of St. Paul, refer to them as persecutions, not with a giggle that Paulie was always out getting stoned with the brothers. Balaam's donkey spoke. Balaam wasn't talking out of. (laughs) And under no circumstances should you ever refer to the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Big Daddy, J.C., and the Spook. (laughs) Now, that might be one of the greatest church jokes of all time. I've told it a few times, and that is the edited version. And maybe Jim Mullins will tell you the rest of it in the parking lot after service today. At weddings and memorial services, I'm often offered a drink before the festivities or the memorial begins because people indeed get nervous at ceremonial times, and I always decline beforehand. I'll say, save that drink for afterwards. And I'll say, particularly at a wedding, I need to have a clear and sober mind as this is a spiritual and a legal binding ritual, and so I need to be able to remember what I said should I ever have to testify in a court of law about it. 
especially if either the bride or the groom or both were settling their own nerves with a drink or two beforehand. Oh, I got stories. I can't really tell any of them, not yet. One day in my tell-all expose, maybe. Drunk grooms, high as the proverbial kite brides, Xanax funerals, drunk preachers, I got stories. I'll tell you one that's safe now. There was a wedding in Crandall, Georgia, years ago, way up in the hills, beautiful Beautiful hill country, beautiful farm, this barnyard style wedding, extravagant southern ritz and charm. The service was delayed, and I can't remember why the failure of my memory will become apparent. It was July, it was hot, with that kind of humidity that just suffocates you. You know it. So the caterers released mason jars of lemonade for the crowd and for the officiant to cool our parched throats as we baked beneath the Georgia sun. Every one of those wide mouth quart jars was spiked with vodka. Every one of them. Apparently, as we would learn later, the lemonade was for the after party, but signals got crossed or communications failed or it was an intentional act of humorous sabotage. I don't know. But by the time the wedding got underway, collectively, we were all at peak inebriation. The only sober people were the bride, the groom, and the immediate wedding party. This crowd, mostly dry Baptist, was laughing uproariously. They were loud. They were catcalling. Little kids were rolling around on the ground. Old folks were giggling as they teetered on the edge of falling out of their wheelchairs. The caterer was crying her eyes out in the barn. And I myself was suffering from terror. Great terror. I wasn't nervous. I was stoned. (laughs) A mason jar of vodka and sugary lemonade on an empty stomach And while you're nearly sunstroked, I was terrified that I would use the wrong names when it came time to pronounce the vowels or step on a flower girl or something. I had to hang around longer than usual at the reception just to sober up to drive home. Now, I have a pretzeled religious mind. Y'all know that by now. But since that has occurred to me, When I read Acts 2 and the accusation is made against the apostles that on Pentecost Sunday they were drunk, I now think of this this wedding. Plump, sweaty Baptists grinning in the sun. That's the most relaxed some of them had been their entire life. Children cartwheeling over green grass, their natural impulses set free. Who cares about the grass stains or the manners or their behavior? Their mothers didn't. They were all fanning and sipping and laughing. And meanwhile, there were a few of the more stoic Baptists in the crowd who could both sniff out vodka and a good time from a mile away and would show up just to stomp the daylights out of all of it. They could only clutch their pearls. And one said, I have never seen anything like this. And she said it just as I was walking by to take my position at the altar and my filters were gone. And I simply said, honey, you have now. And the poor caterer, I found her before I left that evening, finally sober after a gallon of water and about 30 of those miniature pigs in a blanket, and I told her 
that it was the most magnificent wedding in those hills had ever seen, that the setting was ideal, the food was superb, the presentation was first class, and the atmosphere was humorously perfect. That without her pregame hydration, it would have been just another stuffy, hot, and bothered ceremony. The bride and groom were no worse for the wear. Everyone was having a great time except for about four people. And everyone there would talk about that for the rest of their lives. And she said, thank you. Are you okay to drive? (laughs) You know, a major challenge. It's a genuine problem when it comes to our religious institutions. is predictability. Everything can be so rote, so mechanical, expected, boring, dead even. No joy, no laughter, no life. And I'm not saying that churches or denominations, for that matter, should intentionally mix it up or slip the preacher a Mickey before Mass or get the choir drunk. I'm not even saying that they should throw out their liturgy or their well-established typical order of service. Because order and routine can be very comforting. I am saying that they, we, denominations, churches, individuals, we must be open to the Spirit of God. We must let God work, even when, especially when it surprises us or catches us off guard. Those are the moments when you are shook loose from the expected that God really might speak to you, and you really might hear it. Pentecost is a Jewish holiday, like so many of our Christian celebrations, though it doesn't go by that name. It is Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks specifically. Seven weeks after Passover, the Jewish people celebrate Shavuot as a harvest festival, the gathering in of the spring wheat in the land of Israel. Pentecost, as Christians commemorate the birth of the church and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, means 50. 50 days since Easter, 7 weeks, 49 days since Passover. The rituals, the meanings are different, but the Jewish and the Christian events obviously share the same timeline and have similarities. The major common denominator is this idea of bringing in the crops. This in-gathering, filling the house with the bounty of the harvest. A point of reference, a song that we sang in my church growing up, and we sang it a lot, was a song called Bringing in the Sheaves. I don't know if any of you remember that one. It's a gospel song. It's a farming song. It's a Pentecost song. Written in 1874 by Noel Shaw a Church of Christ minister and singer. He is a story unto himself. I'll tell you that story sometime. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontime and in the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Then the chorus goes, bringing in the sheaves, and it goes on and on and on like that. As a youngster, I didn't know what a sheave was couldn't read, and so I sang for years, bringing in the sheep, because that seemed to make more sense to me. And then you learn to read. (laughs) Oh, that's what they've been singing about. And a sheave is a haystack. That's all it is. 
Before you could bale with a tractor or a baler or harvest with machinery, the harvest was done completely by hand. You put the scythe or the sickle, the blade, to the stalk, be it the wheat or the hay or the corn, sugar cane, whatever. And when you had enough to fill your arms, you tied it all together in a bundle and you left it standing in the field. And after the intense work of cutting and gathering and tying was complete, the much more celebrated work, the easier work, the happy work was bringing those sheaves in. So when Shaw wrote, and millions of Church of Christ and Baptist and Methodist people sang, bringing in the sheaves, we were all talking and singing about getting in on the work of God in the world. We were celebrating the ingathering of all God's people after the laborious and painful work completed by Jesus. Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church powerfully, unexpectedly, chaotically even. So much so that some of the observers think it is a drunken party. But what is happening is a harvest. People from all over the world are in Jerusalem. They have been celebrating the harvest festival, and now they become the harvest itself. I omitted those verses to make Anna's job of reading less taxing, but Acts 2 lists where these people were all from. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. We are the world. We are the children. It is a variegated, diverse crop, and they all, by God's Spirit, have a place to call home and can call each other brother and sister. Maybe we have argued so long about the events of Acts chapter 2 that we have missed the meaning of Acts chapter 2. Because this is a controversial passage in much of Christianity. It has sparked unending debate about spiritual gifts, about speaking in tongues. Should we, should we not? It has created in some circles levels of spirituality. I had a dear Pentecostal charismatic friend when I lived in Georgia. We dearly loved each other. He was always telling me that I hadn't yet experienced the whole work of God in my life because I hadn't yet spoken in tongues that I hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit. And I was always telling him that if he kept talking in tongues, he was going to scare every new person that comes to his church away because they've never seen anything like that. And so we debated and we argued over the cessation of the gifts and the meaning of glossolalia in the Greek, but I think we missed the point together while arguing those points. Pentecost isn't about speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues. It's not about being charismatic or being Episcopalian. I pick Episcopalians because they don't seem to say anything unless it's in the Book of Common Prayer. Everything is very scripted. It's not about cloven tongues of fire or mighty rushing wind, even though all those things are in the text. All of that in the text points to what the work of the Spirit of God is. And the work of the Spirit of God is there is one body in one spirit, as you are all called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
The work of the Spirit is the building and making of God's new humanity. It is the work of bringing in the sheaves. The work of the harvest. All the beautiful, variegated, unique, and diverse people of the world brought together in unity. It is actually possible by the power of God. So speak in tongues or don't. Sit in your pew, stoic and unmoved, or do backflips across the sanctuary. Not right this second, but retreat into nature, into the woods, the beach. Let the spirit blow in the wind. Sit in contemplative silence. Sing, dance. The way the spirit moves is as diverse as the individual. Be your beautiful white self. Be your beautiful black self. Embrace your African, your Latino, your Asian heritage. Be a Southerner. Be a Snowbird. Be a Brit. Be an American. Be a Canadian. Paul again. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of God honors us all. And all of our different backgrounds and ethnicities. And yes, even our theologies. And then can bind us all together still in community. You remember the old cheer? We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? Yeah. Well, you know you have the spirit. Not when you're loud and rambunctious in church, or if you're out protesting something, or you've had some sort of religious encounter. Do you know how you have the Spirit? Paul, Galatians 5, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So I say, walk by the Spirit. He means here, keep in step, stay in sync with the Spirit, constant contact with the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, here's how you know. This is what the, the Spirit produces in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul would go on to say, against these things there is no law. In other words, this supersedes all religion. You get that? This is, this is the work of God in the world to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. This is the evidence of a true spirituality. Not how sound your theology is, because nobody's theology is very sound. We don't know as much as we think we do. It's not how many times you've been slain in the Spirit, not how well you can quote John Calvin or the Reformers, Not how many times you go to church each week or if you haven't missed mass in 30 years or if you vote correctly on the issues, whatever correctly might mean by whoever is defining that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the harvest of the Spirit of God within each of our lives. This is how a community, this is how a world can be brought together and can be healed. This is how we can all maintain our own individual identity and yet join the communion of all the saints. This is how diversity of opinion 
and color and creed and age and ethnicity flourishes because we look at others through the lens of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, we may find our people, people that worship in the way that we prefer or play rock and roll songs in the middle of church or something like that or play hymns or whatever. We're going to gravitate to where we are most comfortable, but that doesn't create barriers, it shouldn't, with those who don't do the things that we do. Or don't do it our way. Because these love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they break all boundaries. It is the Spirit of God at work. You know, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. I know some true Christians. And their joy, their steadiness, their hope, their life it makes you want to be a Christian. And then the best argument against Christianity is Christians. Anger, stubbornness, self-righteousness, insensitivity. Here's Dallas Ward. He says it better than I can. How many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way of Jesus by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boring, lifeless, obsessive, dissatisfied? Yet such Christians are everywhere, and what they are missing is the wholesome liveliness of vitality springing up from God's love. Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery. Spirituality rightly understood is life. It is receiving grace. It is the embrace of God's love. So let us be marked as those who will laugh, who will love, and who are alive, made so by the Spirit. Let us be those eager to grant grace, ready to join the celebration of God's great and diverse world. And let us be quick to welcome and recognize the work of God amongst us, even when that work arrives in surprising ways.